Welcome to the Crossing Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. The Crossing Church exists to see every person restored to God and to the life He created them to live. And we want to walk through this journey with you. If you need help or if you need prayer of any kind, you can text the keyword, I need help to 31996. Or if you give your life to the Lord, we would love to know. You can text the keyword, I said yes, to that same number, 31996. Someone from our care team will reach out to see how we can walk through life with you. We're so glad that you've joined us today. Enjoy the message. We are in for a very, very special treat this morning. Daryl Youngblood, who is the creator of RDOF, Rational Defense of Faith. Yeah, give him a hand. Yeah, yeah. He's going to take on the question, is there scientific evidence for the existence of God? It's an important question and one that all of us need to be armed with because Peter tells us we need to be able to give a defense for the hope that is alive inside of us. And this is part of that, and I'm grateful that he's here. So now I'm going to start reading because Daryl has done a lot of things, and I want you all to really know this because I, I love the man. He's just, he's just amazing. Daryl has written, produced, recorded, and mixed Grammy-nominated music, as well as five national number one hits and nine top ten singles. He was awarded Best Producer in the 2013 Houston Press Music Awards and has worked with major labels like Capitol Records. He has also worked on major motion pictures with Lionsgate Films and TV networks such as the Discovery Channel and ESPN. There have been millions of views of his videos on the internet and he has received national acclaimed praise from scholars and apologists for the work that he has done. As a scientist myself, I admire the critical thinking that Daryl brings to everything that he does. And so this is an important thing. So we're going to say, I want you to turn to the folks around you, say, hello, glad you're here. And then we're going to welcome R-D-O-F. whether something is a product of intelligence or randomness. All of us have an innate ability to make this distinction. For history's most brilliant thinkers, the manifestation of design in the universe and nature was apparent. Through the centuries from Plato and Aristotle to Newton, Leibniz, and Thomas Aquinas, These great thinkers saw the world as being the work of a powerful designing intelligence. Later in the 1800s, this idea was further articulated by William Paley, who wrote extensively about this subject. His views were even supported by Charles Darwin. His book, Natural Theology, was considered essential reading at universities like Cambridge for over 100 years. In this book, he expands on what is known as the watchmaker analogy. He gives the example of himself walking in a grassy field. 
He imagines himself in two different hypothetical situations as he's walking along. In the first scenario, as he's walking, he accidentally hits his foot on a stone. Paley then states if he were asked how the stone got there, and he replies that the stone might have been there forever, that answer would hardly be absurd, meaning that it's perfectly reasonable to suggest that the stone had always been there. Then he imagines a second, different scenario. In this scenario, he asked, what if instead of a stone, he comes upon a watch just laying there? He expresses that he could hardly say that the watch had just always been there. He explains that because the watch, with all of its intricate parts, has such an obvious manifestation of design, the proper question to ask would be, who comprehended its construction? Because as Paley insinuates, the watch, unlike the stone, must have had a designer. This same idea was even advanced by pioneers of the scientific revolution like Isaac Newton. Newton, widely recognized as the most influential scientist of all time, stated that the physical laws that he had uncovered revealed the mechanical perfection of the workings of the universe to be akin to a watch, wherein the watchmaker is God. Rene Descartes viewed the cosmos as a great time machine operating according to fixed laws, a watch created and wound up by the great watchmaker. Through the centuries, this appearance of design in the universe and nature was acknowledged again and again. Today is a journey of discovery into three independent lines of modern scientific evidence. From genetics to cosmology to physics, we will ask, what is the best explanation for the evidence we see in the universe and nature? Thank you. Welcome to the Crossing Church and to REOF, Rational Defense of Faith. I am extremely excited to be here for multiple reasons. Thank you, Pastor Reggie, for that very kind introduction. The best smelling man I know, I say it every time. Go smell this man. It's ridiculous how good he smells. That's a little weird for Sunday morning, sorry. I am excited about this presentation because it is our first live RDOF presentation since 2019, pre-COVID. So um, I've been working on this for three years. I guess that's another way to look at this. And a special welcome for everyone watching online. I wish you could be here, but thank you for tuning in. And um, I'm going to tell you something right off the bat. I plan to blow your minds tonight. Now, having our brain stretch is not something we want to do on a Sunday morning, but it's inevitable. Why? Because I will literally be talking about the attributes of a timeless, powerful creator of the universe and nature and the very laws of physics. Having your mind blown is kind of inevitable. Sorry about that. Now, for those who are here who might be skeptics, who might not be believers, let me first say I am so glad that you are here, and I want to thank you for taking the time to be here this morning. But you can also expect to have your mind blown. Why? Because today we are all going to witness, no matter, no matter what any of us believe, we're all going to witness the incredible, unfathomable beauty and complexity and architecture of the universe and nature itself. And today we're going to look at three different lines of scientific evidence. Now, I want to tell you, I could do a full presentation on each of these topics, and I have done them, and I'm not going to have time to get incredibly too in-depth on all of them this morning, but we have presentations online that are available, and so 
during this presentation, you might see something that pops up that looks something like this. And what it's going to do is it's going to show you what presentations that the clip you're watching is from. So as I said, we are going to look at three different lines of scientific evidence. And what I ask of you, no matter what you believe, is that you have an open mind. Can I get that from you? An open mind this morning. All right. And we're going to look at this with open minds, and we're going to ask this question. What is the best explanation? And there are two options on the table to explain the evidence that we see in nature and the universe. One is a natural explanation. Natural is defined as occurring in conformity with the ordinary course of nature, not marvelous and not supernatural. The other explanation is supernatural, defined as an event attributed to some force beyond scientific understanding and the laws of nature. So the two options for the explanations that we're looking at are either a purely natural, random, unguided explanation or a supernatural non-random, intelligently designed explanation. Make sense to everyone? So the question that we're going to ask ourselves is, what would we expect to find in the universe and in nature if either of these two opposing explanations were true? Now, one way to do this is to look at the way that the universe and nature are arranged. Arranged. An example of this would be if we see cereal on a table. We can look at the arrangement of the cereal and tell whether it was the product of a purely natural random cause or whether it would be the product of a supernatural intelligent cause. If we look at this cereal, we can see that there's clearly nothing but natural unguided causes going on in the arrangement of the cereal. But what about this one? If we look at this next one, what can we determine about the arrangement of this cereal? Well, what do we ask? Is this best explained by a purely natural random cause, or is it better explained by a supernatural intelligent cause? Now, clearly the arrangement of the cereal here is not the product of just a random natural cause. Why? Because we see that the cereal is arranged in the form of what we would call specified instructions or specified information. Makes sense to everyone. We don't have to be a rocket scientist to know these distinctions between these two explanations. So with that foundation here, I want to look at history, and I want to see through the eyes and hear the words of the greatest scientists in history, and we're going to see how they perceived this arrangement of nature and the universe, and how this affected scientific progress. Check this out. Does belief in God hinder scientific progress? Are most scientists atheists? We constantly hear these statements in one form or another. Leading atheists say religion goes against the spirit of science. They say, scientists, if you're not an atheist, you're not doing science right. To see if this is true, we will look at some of history's greatest scientists. Werner Heisenberg was the creator of quantum mechanics. He said, the first gulp from the glass of the natural sciences will make you an atheist, but at the bottom of that glass, God is waiting for you. Heisenberg was responsible for some of the most important discoveries in scientific history. He won a Nobel Prize. Was he not doing science right? And there's Einstein, who said, the more I study science, the more I believe in God. And he made it clear that he was not an atheist. What about Isaac Newton, largely known as the greatest scientist in history? He discovered gravity, developed calculus, invented the telescope, 
devised the three laws of motion, advanced modern chemistry, and proposed a new theory of light and color. He was a devout Christian. Did his belief in God hinder scientific progress? Then there's Robert Boyle, known for laying the foundations of chemistry as we know it today. Boyle was well known as the founder of modern chemistry. Then we have Louis Pasteur, credited with saving millions of lives through the development of vaccines. He was known as the father of microbiology. Sir Joseph Thompson helped revolutionize the knowledge of atomic structure by his discovery of the electron. He says, the truth of which is emphasized by every advance in science, that great are the works of the Lord. These scientists were explicit about their faith. They all believed in God. Were they not doing science right? In fact, out of the 52 top scientists of the scientific revolution, which was one of the most important periods in scientific history, 50 of them did not just believe in God, but were devout Christians. Only two were skeptics. These were the rock stars of science, the very people who gave us modern science as it is today. In fact, studies show that out of the 300 outstanding scientists in the world, 242 believe in God. Other studies show that 65% of Nobel Prize winners were Christians. A survey of 3,000 scientists in Europe revealed barely one in four described themselves as an atheist. One in four in the UK and one in five in Germany and France say science and religion contradict one another. So back to the question, does belief in God really hinder scientific progress? Clearly not. Are most scientists atheists? Well, in the words of the famous Neil deGrasse Tyson, This notion that if you're a scientist, you're an atheist, or if you're religious, you're not a scientist, that's just empirically false. Well, there's some facts for you, the history of the greatest scientists who have ever lived. Now, some people will see this, and they will say, you know, that's just what people believed back then. That's just kind of what everybody believed. If you were saying that, then you were missing the actual words that these guys were saying. These scientists, if you remember, were saying that it was scientific evidence that specifically pointed them to the possibility of the existence of God. Not that they believed it just because it was fashionable at the time. When they looked at evidence, they interpreted it as evidence to support the existence of God. A common soundbite that we hear every day is that there's no evidence for God. I was raised by a scientist, a brilliant scientist. He would be the first person to tell you that is completely not scientific, that statement that there is no evidence for anything. Why? Because that's not how evidence works. That's not how science works. Evidence, folks, is everywhere. And evidence makes no claims and has no opinions in and of itself. Evidence is what? It's interpreted. Evidence is interpreted. Example, think about how many attorneys have stood in front of a jury claiming that there is absolutely no evidence of guilt for their client, only to have a jury find plenty of evidence and then convict their client. Evidence is interpreted, and that's the way it works, and that's the way it is with science. In science, evidence is interpreted using what is called the inference to the best explanation, the best explanation. And we see in this video that different scientists interpret this evidence in different ways. When these scientists in this video saw evidence to support the existence of God in science, this was their interpretation of the evidence. And this interpretation comes from their knowledge of 
of, of, of experience and their knowledge of experience. And they have this interpretation when they look at the arrangements of nature, what they do is they attribute those arrangements to their most logical causes based on their experience and their experiments. And so the question that we have here is what was the evidence that these scientists, that these great scientists interpreted as evidence that supported the existence of God? What was this evidence? To be clear, we are not here making the claim that scientific evidence supports the existence of God just because we already assume it's true, just because we already believe in God. We are looking at the best explanation based on the evidence alone. And we are now operating on the established fact that the greatest scientists who've ever lived has said that they saw evidence for God in science. So the first line of evidence what we're going to talk about is the origin of the universe itself. If the universe were the product of a supernatural creator, we would expect to see evidence of that, right? But in fact, there was a period in scientific history where it seemed like the evidence went against the idea of a creator. Check this out. Gottfried Leibniz, one of the 17th century's greatest thinkers once asked, why is there something rather than nothing? It was just understood from the greatest thinkers that there was a creator of the universe. But in the early 1900s, scientists suddenly said that this claim was wrong, that the universe was eternal and therefore could not have been created. This was directly contrary to the idea of a creator. The first words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Hebrew translation there literally means to bring into existence all that is physical reality, the entire physical universe. So the Bible stood alone as one of the only holy books that talks literally about a beginning of space and time. And the Bible stood alone at this time against some of the most brilliant minds and scientists. And if there was no beginning, then there could be no creator. And this caused many people to question what they believe, to question the existence of God. However, a few years later, a series of amazing discoveries revealed that the stars and the galaxies and everything in the universe were spreading away from one another in all directions. What did this mean? This meant that if you reverse the clock, that everything must have originated at a single starting point. So how did scientists know this? It was based on a monumental scientific discovery called redshift. The best way to explain it is to look at a very fast car. Take this Porsche, for instance. Listen to the sound as it passes by. The pitch gets higher as it comes towards us, and then as it passes, it gets lower. This is called a Doppler shift. This is caused because the sound waves from the car are being compressed as they come towards us. And then, as the car moves away from us, the sound waves are stretched out, causing a lower pitch. 
Well, the same thing happens with light. If our eyes could detect color in more detail, we could see that the car actually gives off a bluish tint as it approaches. And it gives off a reddish tint as it leaves us. Well, the same thing is true in space. As stars or galaxies move towards us, they give off a bluish tint. This is known as blue shift. As stars or galaxies move away from us, they give off a reddish tint. This is known as red shift. This discovery was made by Edwin Hubble. And by this, scientists were able to determine that all the objects in the universe were spreading away from one another. Because of this, they knew if they turned back the clock that everything must have originated at a single starting point, showing that the universe had a beginning. This is known as the Big Bang Theory. So why was this important? This showed that there was, in fact, a beginning to the universe. This was clear evidence that the biblical account in Genesis was backed up by scientific evidence, meaning that the Big Bang does not conflict with the biblical account of creation. It fully supports it. In fact, it was actually developed by a Christian named George Lemaitre. And atheist scientists were resistant to it because of the theological implications it brought in. So these atheists were actually holding back science. You see, a beginning of space, time, matter, and energy necessitates a cause. And by definition, this cause had to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and unthinkably powerful. The famous Stephen Hawking once said, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. So Redshift provided exactly the evidence that we would expect to find if there were an all-powerful creator of the universe. stuff. So the Big Bang does not conflict with Christianity. And some people think that. And I want to make sure everybody knows that it fully supports the biblical account of creation. And since then, it's been backed up by papers from major scientists like even Stephen Hawking. So what was significant about this? Before we, we talked about what was called the interpretation of evidence, right? We said that there are certain things that we would expect to see if the universe were the product of a supernatural creator. Well, we can apply this to what we've seen here with the origin of the universe. Logic tells every one of us that whatever begins to exist has some sort of a cause. So if the universe just began to exist, it had to have a cause. Everybody agree? If I just stand up here and I hold my hand out and a rock pops into existence, what do we say? Magic. This dude's doing magic. This is an illusion. And believe me, I'm not a good magician. So you'd know it was magic if a rock pops up here. Well, let's think about this. What is a rock? A rock is just a bunch of matter clumped together. Well, it turns out that the universe is just a bigger bunch of the same type of matter that's clumped together. The Big Bang was a sextillion, quintillion, trillion pounds of matter that just popped into existence. So that evidence still requires an explanation. Atheist philosopher Kai Nelson says it like this. He says, 
Suppose you suddenly hear a loud bang, and you ask me, what made that bang? And I reply, nothing, it just happened. You wouldn't accept that. In fact, you would find my reply quite unintelligible. So remember, we determine the best explanation based on knowledge of cause and effect, right? And knowledge from our experience and experiment. Well, folks, we don't ever see matter popping into existence. If we do, we have a word for it. It's called magic, right? Well, if we see a panda pop into existence, obviously it's magic, right? Well, clearly, like we said, if we see a rock pop into existence, still magic, right? Well, since a planet's just a big rock, if a planet pops into existence, what can we say? Magic, maybe? Okay, the universe is just a bunch of rocks, planets, and stars. So why isn't a universe popping into existence considered the same type of magic as a rock popping into existence? And the point here is the need for the explanation does not change just because of the size of the object. But there's so much more because it wasn't just matter that popped into existence. It was space and time itself. So what does this mean if we back up? What that means is that whatever caused this universe had to be timeless because it caused time to exist. It had to be immaterial because it caused matter to begin to exist. And it had to be immeasurably powerful because it caused an entire universe to come into existence. That is powerful. Remember now, there are only two options on the table to explain this, either a natural explanation or a supernatural explanation. So what does the evidence point to? Like we said, a timeless, immaterial, powerful cause of the universe. Folks, this is exactly the evidence that we would expect to see if a supernatural being was the cause. It is not at all the evidence that we would expect to see if it were the product of just a natural, unguided process. Make sense? So for anybody here who is a skeptic, am I saying that this right here proves that God exists? No, I am not. What I am saying is that this is evidence that supports a key attribute to this God we believe in, that he is a powerful, timeless creator of matter and energy and time itself. That fits right in with our belief system. And what I do here with RDOF is it's not just one evidence. It's a line of multiple evidences. It is a cumulative case. When we look at it, it starts to point in a certain direction. And so the first line of evidence that we see here for the origin of the universe is just what we would expect to see if it was created by an all-powerful creator. Now, the next line of evidence that we're going to get to Isaac Newton once said, in the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. The thumb alone. Now, in Isaac Newton's time and even in Charles Darwin's time, there was no understanding of what we know now as the molecular world. A cell back then was referred to as a lump of jelly-like substance. And it was assumed just to be simple and inconsequential. However, in 1953, James Watson and Francis Crick discovered something deep within the cell, the nucleus of a cell, that literally changed everything. Because inside this cell, what they thought was just this lump of jelly-like substance turned out to be the most important, profound basis for all of life, DNA. DNA. 
It was a code and an information system that literally defied comprehension. So DNA, what exactly is DNA? DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. It is a molecule that contains four what are called nucleotides, adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. And these are rep represented by the characters A, T, G, and C. And these characters act like a four-character digital code, much like the binary code in our computers, but way, way more advanced. DNA stores its information in the form of this four-character digital code. And guess what? The specific arrangement of these characters literally determine whether you are a brunette, how about that, or whether you are a blonde, and it actually even determines whether you are a male or whether you're female or whether even you're a gorilla or whether you're a giraffe that goes to parties. So what was so incomprehensible about DNA? Well, far beyond just being a molecule and a bunch of chemicals, scientists discovered something that was truly baffling about it. They discovered that DNA contained meaningful information and instructions. More so, they found that inside DNA was a complex language and an information system that is far, far more advanced than anything mankind has ever created, even to this day, on the tip of your finger. And what this does is this takes DNA out of the realm of biology and puts it into what's called information science. The laws, folks, of information science state that information never spontaneously appears. A language never constructs itself. Codes and instructions are never generated without conception. They all require intelligence. Jonathan Wells, who's a PhD of molecular and cellular biology from Berkeley, says it like this. Intelligence is the only presently acting cause of information. We can infer that intelligence is the best explanation for the information in DNA. On top of that, DNA is a computer language. It's like a computer language. Even Bill Gates, who I'm pretty sure doesn't believe like we do, says that DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. So the appearance of design and intelligence in DNA is obviously apparent to everyone. What's even more is the amount of DNA that you have in your body. Did you know that the amount of DNA you have in your body, the information, is the equivalent to 384 volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica? It could fill 48 feet of library shelves, and yet its size is actually two millionths of a millimeter thick. Amazing. In addition to that, DNA is far, far more advanced and efficient at data stores than anything we've created, like with our jump drives and all that. In fact, it's far, far more advanced than anything our most brilliant minds have ever designed. Research at Harvard and Johns Hopkins showed that one gram of DNA can hold 455 exabytes of information, the equivalent of 600 billion CD-ROMs, or 455 trillion books. Get this, four grams of DNA can hold all of the world's data, all of it. Every book ever written, every album ever recorded, every Facebook post, Instagram post, the entire internet in four grams of DNA. And what's even more amazing is when you think about that, consider that virtually every cell in your body carries a complete copy of your genetic code. So the question arises very quickly. What purely natural process have we ever witnessed 
of being capable to create and miniaturize and code this kind of vast information. What purely natural process have we ever witnessed that could cause these vast amounts of letters to arrange themselves into the proper sequence to form the genetic instructions to make you? DNA code is also referred to as a language. To rightfully be called a language, something must contain an alphabet or a coding system. It has to have correct spelling and grammar, the proper arrangement of words. It has to have meaning and semantics, and it has to have an intended purpose. Science shows us that DNA has all of these characteristics. Folks, the only examples that we have that exhibit this type of high-level communication are human languages or artificial languages, computer code, all intelligently designed. DNA also has advanced error correction that puts our error correction to shame. In fact, DNA does its error correction with such precision, its average copying error is one error in 10 billion. Are you that good when you text? I'm not. But perhaps the most amazing realization about the information in DNA is that it's not only meaningful information, but it is separate. The information is separate from matter itself. What do I mean when I say that? When you need a new phone, what's the first thing you do? The dreaded cloud. We got to back up to the cloud, right? If you're an iPhone user like me, it's the iCloud. All right, so what do we do? Once we send that data to the cloud, we can take that phone, we can throw it in a lake, we can stomp on it. Why? Because we have realized that our actual phone isn't the physical components or the screen, it's the data, it's the information on that phone, which is out there, which is taken a different form, which at this point has become immaterial, right? And we realize that our actual phone isn't a physical thing. What about the songs we sing today? That's songs. You know, the information and the meaning of those songs still exists. It's in your mind. There's no musicians on stage. There's no guitars, right? But the information still exists. It has meaning. And that meaning cannot be described by describing the physical makeup of these speakers or even the people who play the instruments. Does that make sense to you? This is what's remarkable. Evolutionary biologist George Williams says it like this. The DNA molecule is the medium not the message. He goes on to say that information doesn't have mass or charge or length in millimeters. Information theory shows that information is not in the same category as matter or energy, which means that matter and information are two separate domains. That is amazing. Wow. Think about this for a second. What that means is that the physical sciences can only explain the physical molecule of DNA, but it cannot explain the information or the meaning within it. And just as your phone, your phone, your, your personal phone cannot be explained by describing a screen or the electronics, the information in DNA cannot be explained by talking about the physical molecule. This is so profound, guys. Do you see where this is pointing? Do you know what this means? I've said all this to show you that what this means is that within DNA, Within DNA, there is an immaterial intelligence at work that cannot be measured by the natural sciences. Amazing. What constitutes intelligence? Not quite. How do we ascertain whether something that we observe? But I will take a drink. Check out this video. All right.
What constitutes intelligence? How do we ascertain whether something that we observe originated from a mind or from a random, unguided process? We all intrinsically know when something has ceased from being erratic and disordered and has become structured and intended. There is a point when we know that something is no longer accidental but has become intentional. We all recognize when mindlessness becomes mindfulness. Consider SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. When scientists search for signs of intelligence, how do they determine that a signal or code originated from intelligence? They look for specified, decipherable, sequenced order, as opposed to random, unspecified, indecipherable, disorder. And if this is the standard they use for determining that a signal or a code originated from intelligence, shouldn't this standard also apply to the specified, sequenced, coded information in DNA? The capacity to detect intelligence is not only used in SETI. It's something we all use in our everyday lives. From the most brilliant minds to a small child, we intrinsically know when we witness the result of intelligence versus randomness. We know when the arrangement of objects is the result of a purely natural cause versus an intelligent cause. Whether it's the arrangement of molecules or everyday items, we know when objects have been arranged to convey specified, meaningful information. And we know whenever we witness this, there is always a mind behind it. We might call it magic or an illusion, but we clearly intrinsically know it was the result of intelligence and intentional design. We know that in DNA there is specified, meaningful information and instructions. We know that any time we find information and instructions, whether it's the formation of rocks in a lake, or computer code, or writing on a wall, they will always be the product of a mind. DNA are the instructions for building all of life. You and your body are a machine made from instructions. So the question to ask is, where did the instructions come from in the first place? In our event, The Code of God, we showed that DNA is an advanced instruction and information system that literally defies comprehension. And in DNA, as biochemist Michael Denton explains, they found artificial languages, decoding systems, and memory banks. They found information storage and retrieval systems, elegant control systems regulating the automated assembly of parts. They found error correction, fail-safe proofreading devices, assembly processes involving the principle of prefabrication and modular construction, and a capacity not equaled in any of our most advanced machines for it would be capable of replicating its entire structure within a matter of a few hours. All this exists on the tip of your finger. DNA functions like alphabetic characters in a written language. And we all know in here tonight that languages and information only come from minds. You see, ancient fossils and fragments don't offer anything 
to explain the vast complexity of life and biological information? What is the empirically verifiable experiment that shows a blind process taking a random molecule and then turning it into an advanced language and then a way to read that language and then from there turning it into something like an immune system or a clotting system or a neurological system or the pulmonary system or the cardiovascular system or the optical system or the auditory system or brain function or cognitive function or logic or consciousness or self-awareness. What is the scientific experiment that demonstrated that that happened? doesn't exist. The evidence for design in DNA is undeniable. It screams intelligence. In fact, it is so powerful. That is the reason Anthony Flew, the world's most notorious atheist, renounced his atheism. Even Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of DNA, found it impossible that DNA could have evolved naturally. In fact, he and other scientists, get this, they proposed that life on Earth may have been seeded by other civilizations. Where does the evidence point? And so, if DNA language ever did randomly write itself, it would be worthless without first having pre-existing knowledge of the language. And DNA is like a written language. And we know that languages come from a mind. Amazing. And people are like, you know, gosh, Daryl, you give so much information. Blame God. <laughs> I'm just the messenger here. I can't get all of it either. There's a lot, and this is the tip of the iceberg. And this is amazing because from what the video told you, one of the most inconceivable things about DNA is not just the information, but it's the fact that even if this language did magically write itself, that still is not enough. Now, this is amazing because... As the video said, in order for any information of any kind, especially the information in DNA, to have any meaning or usefulness, it has to have two other things. It has to have, something has to have a pre-existing knowledge of this language, right? And it has to have a way to read this language. And let's talk about that. Let's go back to the phone analogy, because everybody gets phones, right? The information in our phone has meaning to us because we have pre-existing knowledge of a language. But... It means nothing to a rat. Why? Because a rat does not have pre-existing knowledge of the language. Does this make sense? In order for information, even if it does magically appear, there has to be an entity to read it who has pre-existing knowledge of a language. Pre-existing knowledge is the same with DNA. DNA information, if it comes about, still means nothing unless there is an entity present that has pre-existing knowledge of a language. DNA information must be read to have meaning. It must be decoded and transcribed. The instructions in DNA are read in processes called transcription and translation, seen here. And they're read by complex decoding and translation machines like RNA polymerase, seen here. And they're read in a specific direction, just like the English language. And this is truly amazing. Why? Because, again, the very function of DNA requires an immaterial, pre-existing knowledge of a language. Folks, knowledge requires intelligence. There's no such thing as knowledge without intelligence. Knowledge requires intelligence. That, what that means is 
for DNA to even function in your bodies, for your body to heal, there has to be an intervening outside intelligence at work. It's ridiculous. And there is no purely naturalistic, naturalistic explanation that can account for this. But there's even more problems, more problems, because it even turns out that even if all this did happen, that if you had this information system and you had these decoding machines, you have a chicken and the egg problem going on in DNA. It turns out that the information required to build these decoding machines is itself decoded by DNA. It's the ultimate chicken and the egg problem. Every code, I'll say it this way, every code needs a decoder, but the decoders in DNA come from the code. Uh-oh, what came first, right? So the question here, the obvious elephant in the room here is where does this language, where does this information in DNA come from? Where does the meaning in DNA come from? And where was it before there was a molecule? Because it existed. Amazing. Any purely naturalistic explanation for it to be valid, it must explain and give demonstrable evidence of how a purely natural, unintelligent process could create something like this. How a purely natural, random process could create non-material advanced information, languages, error correction, that are far more advanced than anything we've ever created. Despite all the efforts of scientists for decades, they have never produced anything close to the information systems we see in DNA. Frank Salisbury, who's a PhD at Caltech, he calculated, check this out, calculated the chance of DNA information randomly coming together to form the code just to create one protein. Do you know the chance he came up with? One chance in 10 to the 600 power. It took a supercomputer all day and all night, an entire year to simulate the complete folding of one single protein. DNA does it all night long. I mean, it, you just click it and it's doing it instantly. Amazing. To accept that genetic code could evolve from a purely natural process is literally to break all the known rules about how matter and energy and information science work. In fact, we have never, ever, and I'm telling you, we have never observed any information system inside of a cell gradually evolving into another functional program, our information system. And most scientists admit this. And most scientists will admit, even Richard Dawkins admits, that there is an appearance to design. They admit there's an appearance of design in life. So the question is, why do they assume this appearance of design is not, in fact, design? Well, guess what? They actually don't. In the video, you saw us talk about SETI, right? SETI being the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And they scan the universe looking for radio waves and signals as evidence of intelligence coming from outer space. So what is interesting about this is what is the evidence that SETI considers as valid evidence of intelligence coming from space? Well, in August of 1977, they found a signal that they considered as evidence of intelligence coming from the constellation Sagittarius. It was called the wow signal because they thought it was intelligent life. What struck them about intelligence from the signal. Guess what? It was sequenced code. So let me get this straight. SETI, science, considered sequenced code as evidence of intelligence. Sequenced code as evidence of intelligence. They thought they were talking to aliens. When one cell on one of their fingers came 
contains millions and millions of lines of this same type of sequence code, but far, far more advanced. So the question here is, why is sequence code accepted as evidence of intelligence for aliens, but not evidence of intelligence for DNA? Why? Dean Kenyon, who is a biology professor and biophysics at Stanford, says the new realm of molecular genetics is where we see the most compelling evidence of design on Earth. Patrick Glenn, he's a PhD from Harvard, says today's concrete data points strongly in the God hypothesis. Francis Collins, who you've probably seen on TV during COVID, a very well-known scientist, he, he was a PhD of physics at um, Yale. He was the director of the Human Genome Project, and he says this, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshiped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful, and it cannot be at war with itself. Open minds, right? We all have open minds, right? Where does the evidence point? Honestly, where does the evidence point? The evidence in DNA information is exactly, exactly the evidence that we would expect to see in the natural world if a supernatural outside intelligence was the cause. It's exactly what we would expect to see. It is not at all, at all, what we would expect to see if it were the product of a random, purely natural, unguided process. That is our second line of evidence, which to me is incredibly powerful. But guess what? We're gonna do our third line of evidence, and I have saved the best for last. I talked about blowing your minds. This is the time, if you haven't had it already, your mind's gonna get stretched. Because we're gonna be talking about some numbers, some big numbers. You got some math people in the house? All right. I'm not a math person, so I'm just pretending up here. Anyway. Recently, scientists have discovered that in order for you to exist here today, the initial conditions of the universe, the fundamental forces of nature, and the very parameters of physics must be perfectly balanced to a precision an exactness that literally defies all comprehension. The degree of exactness and precision that these perimeters have to be balanced is so incomprehensibly precise that this is widely regarded by far as the most persuasive and powerful evidence for the existence of God. It's called fine-tuning. What is fine-tuning? A simple, quick way to understand fine-tuning is this. Imagine that in order for you to live, 100 dials like this have to all be set, each be set to a single specific setting. If one were even changed by a hair's width, you never existed, okay? Check this out. Look at, when you look at this, you can see the kind of balance we're talking about. You visualize how incomprehensibly narrow a razor's edge we live on, that our life sits on, and we can see the exactness of this balance and all of these multiple balances and these parameters, and we start to understand and just get a small sense of what I'm talking about. This is kind of what fine-tuning looks like. And we could see something like this and say, the chance of this just happening randomly is just not reasonable. Sir Fred Hoyle, who is an English astronomer who was a former atheist, former, says a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. And like the dials that I showed you in the first clip, 
There are many of these parameters, not just one, but many that have to be set to these unimaginably precise settings for you to exist. There are hundreds of them. I'm only going to need to talk about two for you to have your mind blown out of hundreds, so just thank me. One is good old gravity, gravity, the gravitational constant. So the technical way to put this is that gravity is said to be fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 400 power. Okay, that's a lot to grasp, and I've taught this a lot, so I'm going to take you through this. Gravity is set to be fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 40th. That's, 10, that's one with 40 zeros after it. What this means is, I'll put it in, in a different way. In order for you to exist, to ever have a chance of existing, if the value of gravity changed by even one part in 10 sextillion quintillion, you would have never existed. One part in 10 sextillion quintillion. So to make sure everybody <laughs> gets what I'm about to show you, Told you I was going to stretch you. We're going to have to do a little math review. I know, Sunday morning, math review. Oh, man. We're going to have to do a little math. Okay, remember powers of 10, everyone. Powers of 10, come on. A thousand. 10 to the power of three, right? A million. What? What's a million? 10 to the power of six, right? You got some math people. Now we're going to look at random chance. What are the chances of you guessing the combination of a single combination lock? One chance in 10, one chance in 10,000 which would be one in 10 to the fourth. Get that, right? What are the chances of you guessing the combination to a million locks? That would be one chance in 100 billion or one chance in 10 to the 11th power. Everybody follow me because this is gonna make these big numbers you're gonna see and make a little bit more sense, all right? Check this out. this life wholly unaware of how extraordinarily unthinkably fragile our very existence is. An existence balanced on an exceedingly infinitesimally narrow razor's edge. Beneath it all lies a hidden coalescence of settings. So perfectly balanced if any were changed by an even infinitesimal amount, our lives, thoughts, and dreams would literally be erased from existence. In the rise of modern science, a discovery was made that was utterly mind-bending. Scientists were astonished to discover that reality as we know it is bound by a large set of constants, numbers, and values. They realized that if any of these values were altered by even the slightest, incomprehensibly small degree, not only would human life vanish from existence, but even the very fabric of nature itself. This discovery is known as the fine-tuning of the universe. The laws of physics could have been very different. The laws of how the universe evolved seem to be special in the way that is just very, very conducive to our own existence. If these numbers had different values, then life as we know it 
couldn't have happened. Instead of stars, instead of galaxies, we'd have black holes. Everything seems to be almost on a knife edge. In order for us to exist, these values must be set to a precision that defies comprehension. To get an idea of what scientists mean by fine-tuning, imagine a dial the size of the entire Earth, 25,000 miles across. Now imagine we start to zoom in to the increments of this dial, past continents, past the size of Mount Everest, past the size of a human being. And still, the smallest increments of this dial are not visible. So we keep zooming in, smaller, past the size of a virus. And now imagine we zoom in even more, exceedingly smaller, down to the size of a single atom. And now imagine that even the slightest change to a setting this exact would cause all life and matter to cease to exist. get an idea of just how precisely even one of these values must be set, consider gravity. We're going to look at the fundamental forces of the universe. Recently, scientists have found that the fundamental forces of the universe are perfectly set or fine-tuned to allow human life. The values of these forces are tuned so precisely that if you change them by an even infinitesimal amount, you would not exist. One example is gravity or the gravitational constant. If the value of gravity changed by even one part in 10 sextillion quintillion, human life would be impossible. Folks, that's one with 40 zeros after it. 40 zeros. To explain how incredibly small one part in 10 sextillion quintillion is. Imagine all the grains of sand on a beach. Now imagine all the grains of sand and all the beaches in the world. Okay, that's about a quintillion grains of sand. Now, take that number and multiply it by 10 sextillion. In this analogy, if all of these grains of sand represented the value of gravity, how many grains of sand would you have to add or subtract in order for human life to be impossible? One. One out of 10 sextillion quintillion. That's how precisely gravity alone has to be set for you to exist. The chance that gravity would be set this precisely by accident would be less of the chance of you winning the lottery every second in human history. History, 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 history. Wow. Now, that's just gravity right there. That's just gravity. Remember, there are hundreds of others that have to be set just like this. So one of the constants, the only other one I'm going to talk about, stands out above all the rest here. 
And I'm going to show you this video, and it's going to talk some more numbers. We're all kind of done with numbers, aren't we? But I want you to hear the words of the scientists. One of the scientists here is Leonard Susskind, and he's not a believer yet, but he is grappling. He's known as the man who's proved Stephen Hawking wrong. Right, serious scientist. And I want you to watch him grapple with these numbers and with this next, this next one is called the cosmological constant. But what's important about this video is him grappling with these numbers and listen to the words that he says in a paper that they wrote. All right, check this out. about the astonishingly precise fine-tuning of the gravitational constant. How, if the value of gravity was altered by even the slightest, incomprehensibly small degree, human life would not exist. And as unthinkable as it might be, it turns out that even if the value of gravity were set this precisely, we would still have no chance of existing unless many other parameters were also fine-tuned to the same degree of precision. Perhaps the most mind-boggling of these is what's known as the cosmological constant, a sort of anti-gravity in the universe. In addition to the fine-tuning of gravity, in order for human life to exist, this one constant has to be fine-tuned to an exactness, many orders of magnitude more precisely than gravity, an exactness that is almost incomprehensible. The cosmological constant is said to be fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 120th. That's one, followed by 120 zeros. For perspective, consider that there are only 10 to the 17 seconds in the entire history of the universe. There are only 10 to the 80 subatomic particles in the known universe. In fact, the fine-tuning of this one constant has had such a profound effect on scientists that it drove several nationally renowned scientists to publish a peer-reviewed paper called Disturbing Implications of the Cosmological Constant. One of the scientists is Leonard Susskind, known as the man who proved Stephen Hawking wrong. So what was disturbing about this constant? Consider these words from the paper. Arranging the cosmos as we think it's arranged would have required a miracle. It goes on to say, an unknown agent intervened in the evolution of the universe for reasons of its own. This cosmological constant is a kind of anti-gravity. It is on such a narrow knife edge that it's almost inconceivable if you were to change it just the tiniest, tiniest bit, we couldn't be here. This cosmological constant is tuned to one part and 10 to the 120, 120 decimal places. Nobody thinks that's accidental. That is not a reasonable idea, that something is tuned to 120 decimal places just by accident. You change it a little bit, uh, the world would change radically and we'd be dead and couldn't possibly live. You would wonder where that came from. You know, you would look at the situation and say, wow, Someone really cared to put this parameter at just the right value so that we get to be here in the, and really cares a lot. And yet, even with both gravity and the cosmological constant being fine-tuned with such unthinkable exactness, we would still have no chance of existing unless many other additional parameters were also fine-tuned in the same way. Here are a few of them. 
The ratio of protons to electrons binding to one part in 10 to the 37th. The ratio of electromagnetic force to gravity, one part in 10 to the 40th. The expansion rate of the universe, one part in 10 to the 55th. The mass of the universe, one part in 10 to the 59th. And the list goes on. To think that all these different parameters could each have arrived at such precise, life-permitting values by mere chance is beyond all reason and logic. But it is exactly what we'd expect to discover if it were all the product of design. There is so much evidence here. I remember, I pray a lot before these events for obvious reasons. And I had this conversation and I was like, I had originally, God, I want the evidence. I want to be able to show people the evidence. My next prayer was, quit giving me so much evidence. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get all this stuff out to people because there's so much of it. I mean, it's, it's like, how do you even say this? There's just layer upon layer upon layer upon chance by chance. And then it's just, it's inconceivable. And if you're like me, numbers go so far. And when you're telling me, wow, this is fine-tuned by this part and this much, I might be like you and say, I get that. I know that's a lot. So for people like me, I made a video to try to wrap our heads around what a real-life situation looks like with these kind of astronomical odds. So check this out. The universe is fine-tuned for life to a precision that defies comprehension. To believe that something like this could happen by random chance would be like you being in a cave and there's an earthquake and there's only one way out of this cave and it's a door and it requires a password. And so you see a keyboard. Why? Because this is no ordinary password. You see, this password is 6,610 characters long. It happens to be the entire Declaration of Independence. And it must be typed with correct capitalization and punctuation on the first try, or you're dead. You look at this and you say, there's just no chance I could guess that. So the earthquake rumbles, and the ceiling starts to crack, and little pieces of rock start to hit the keyboard. And to your amazement, you watch the first word of the Declaration of Independence be typed by falling rocks. You look back, and all of a sudden, more rocks fall. Suddenly, the first full sentence, then the first paragraph, the second paragraph, the third paragraph, and finally, to your astonishment, you watch the last word of the Declaration of Independence typed by falling rocks, and the door swings wide open. Now, if this happened to you, would you say, wow, that was a stroke of luck. That just happened by chance. No, you would know that something was up. You would know that this had been rigged. You would know that this was designed for you to live. And that is exactly how it is with the fine tuning of the universe. So ask yourself this, what is the best explanation for how this universe is so astronomically and improbably rigged for you to live? 
Why is it fine-tuned so perfectly and precisely to allow you to have life, to have love, and to be able to even contemplate this very thought? When does chance become so inconceivable that it becomes intentional? Hopefully you can get just a taste. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So again, our question, being honest, being open-minded, where does the evidence point? The evidence in fine-tuning is exactly, exactly the evidence that we would expect to see in nature, in the universe, if a supernatural outside intelligent designer was the cause. And clearly, it's not at all we would expect from a random, purely natural, unguided cause. H.S. Lipsum, a professor of physics at the University of Manchester, says this. He says, I think, however, we must go further than this and admit that the only acceptable explanation is creation says that I know that this is an anathema to physicists, as indeed it is to me, but we must not reject a theory that we do not like if the experimental evidence supports it. Evidence tonight points somewhere, clearly points somewhere, and I think we can all agree it does not point towards naturalism or randomness. Going back to the evidence that we see for the origin of the universe, we see that that points to a powerful, timeless creator of the universe. When we look at fine-tuning, we look at DNA, we have seen that this points to an unimaginably brilliant architect for life and designer of the very laws of physics that allow us to live. So if you're here tonight and you're somebody who is a skeptic, who has come here saying, I don't believe any of that. At the very least, if you are a reasonable person, you have to look at this and say, there is the possibility that there may be something else going on outside of just pure random processes. And folks, if that is true, if you came here believing that only the natural world exists and there is a possibility that that is not true, this changes everything for you, who you are and literally why you are here. And though the evidence that we see tonight clearly points to what we would expect to see if a supernatural creator exists, I'm gonna tell you something that's going to surprise some of you. This is not ultimately why we accept God as our savior and into our lives. It's not. It's way more personal than that. Talked about my father, a brilliant, brilliant scientist, the smartest man in every room he went to, and he would be the first one to tell you that yes, the evidence that he saw in science pointed him to God. It pointed it to him, but that was not what made him give his life. It wasn't. It got his attention. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, and my wife would tell you this, if you asked him why he believed in God, he would not immediately say, oh, it was because of the evidence that I discovered in science. It was because of his relationship. He believed God, he knew God personally. 
And he was pursued by God through his scientific career. And that's what got him there. And that's what led him to God. Tonight, as we sit here and we kind of have an overview of what is going on, why are we even all in this room? I wanna tell you that if you're here, you're supposed to be here. You are supposed to be in this room here today. And the, the reason you're here is because you're being pursued. You're being pursued like my father was being pursued. And the pursuit I'm talking about can't be found in a microscope. It can't be found in a telescope, but it will be the reason that you give your life to God if you allow him in. God didn't have to give us all of this evidence that we're seeing tonight. He didn't, but he did. And I think he did it for a reason. And that reason for you is surrender. It is called the inevitability of the evidence because it causes us to surrender and to be free. The evidence that we've seen here will free us from the prison of the belief that only the natural world exists. And it frees us to believe that there is a principle beyond just selfishness going on in the universe and nature. And it frees us to look beyond the natural world into the spiritual world, which is, folks, the real world. You are tonight, whether you know it or not, an eternal spiritual creature. That is who you are. And you were created by a creator who sees you as purposeful and significant and who brought you in this building right here today. So what do we do with that? What I wanna tell you is if you're here and you're not a believer and you don't get any of this stuff, but you know the evidence speaks for itself and you just want to go a little step further, you wanna talk to somebody, you wanna start that relationship, you're ready to hear more. Please find me, Pastor Reggie, or somebody here at the church and we would love to talk with you and have a conversation. So it's been my pleasure to be here with you and I wanna leave you with one final video. Thank you. Our universe is 20 billion light years in diameter. There are about 1 billion galaxies or 25 sextillion stars within it. The Milky Way alone has over 100 billion stars. At the speed of light, it would require 100,000 years just to travel across. If we drew a map of the Milky Way and the Earth and the Sun were two dots one inch apart, we would need a map four miles wide just to locate the nearest star. And we would need a map 25,000 miles wide to reach the center of our galaxy alone. But what's even more impressive is how fine-tuned our solar system is to support human life. The temperature inside the sun is over 20 million degrees Celsius. The Earth is located exactly the correct distance from the sun for the proper amount of heat for life. If the Earth moved just 10% closer to the sun, there would be far too much heat and radiation for human life to exist. If it moved just 10% farther away, there would be far too little heat available for humans to live, and the Earth would be frozen and desolate. The Earth is rotating on an axis 1,000 miles per hour at the equator, and it's simultaneously moving around the sun at 70,000 miles an hour, which is 19 miles per second. At the same time, the sun and the solar system are whirling through space at 600,000 miles an hour in an orbit so large it would take over 220 million years just to complete one orbit. Amazingly, as the Earth moves in this orbit around the sun, 
It only departs from a straight line only about one-ninth of an inch every 18 miles. If it departed by just one-eighth of an inch, it would come so near the sun that we would be incinerated. If it departed by one-tenth of an inch, the Earth would become frozen and lifeless. The Earth is 240,000 miles from the moon, whose gravitational pull produces the oceans and the tides. If the moon was closer to the Earth by just one-fifth, the tides would be so enormous two times a day, they would reach 35 to 50 feet over the Earth's surface. If the Earth's rotation was cut in half, the seasons would double in length. This would cause so much harsh heat that it would be impossible to grow enough food to feed Earth's population. If the Earth's rotation was doubled, the length of each season would be cut in half, causing the same food shortage. The Earth is tilted on an axis at exactly 23.5 degrees. If it changed to zero, most of Earth's water would accumulate at the poles, making the rest of the planet a vast desert. If the atmosphere were much thinner, meteorites would strike the Earth with greater force and frequency, causing worldwide devastation. Oceans provide a huge amount of moisture, constantly evaporating and condensing. This is supplied to the Earth as rain. Water heats and cools much slower than land. And because it holds its temperature longer, it provides the natural heating and air conditioning system necessary for human life. Four-fifths of the Earth's surface is covered in water. If this changed, the temperature extremes would be so drastic, it would make human life almost impossible. Also, humans and animals inhale oxygen, and we exhale carbon dioxide. Plants take in carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. We depend on plants for our oxygen supply. It turns out that 90% of the oxygen we breathe comes from the tiny plants in the seas. If the oceans were much smaller, we'd soon be out of air to breathe. So here we are, perfectly situated in the galaxy, perfectly situated in the right solar system, on a planet, perfectly placed at the exact right distance from the sun, perfectly positioned at the exact right distance from the moon, whirling through space, rotating at exactly the right axis, precisely fixed at exactly the right rotation, placed at exactly the right orbit, living under the protection of precisely the correct atmospheric mixture in a world with the perfect amount of water and the perfect amount of vegetation. Our very existence requires that our solar system be fine-tuned to a precision and exactness that defies comprehension, perfectly designed for us to exist. Wow, let's give him a hand, yeah. Wow, wow. So how many of you had a pretty good impression that God was pretty cool before you came in here? Did your impression just deepen? Did it just deepen? We serve a God who is so concerned about every detail that he did all of that. And what was his motivation? His motivation was love. It's unconditional love. Now, I know that there are at least two kinds of people in here. There are people who have already made a decision where Jesus is their Lord and Savior. And for you, as I said in the beginning, we need to be able to give a reason for our faith. And it's got two pieces. 
the evidence declares the glory of God. And the presence of his Holy Spirit declares that we have relationship with him. Right? I love it when, when Daryl said about his dad, I know that God exists because I've met him. I've met him. We have a relationship. Now, there's another kind of person in here that has not made that decision. And God said in his holy word that he wanted everybody to have a relationship with his son. Everybody. And that occurs in a very, very simple way. We complicate it as humans. And, I mean, thank God for science. Thank God for science. I told a story during the first service. Let me tell it here right now. When I was a sophomore in college, I studied geophysics. And I was sitting in my astrophysics final exam. And the the question on the final exam was derive the universe. Now, at the time, I loved God. So here's how I started my answer. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that's not a good move (laughs) in an astrophysics class. However, the professor was so moved. I believe God was at work. He was so moved that that's what I did. He gave me an A+. He gave me an A+. God showed up in him. God showed up in him, just like God showed up in some of you today. So here's what I'd like everybody to do. I want everybody to just bow your heads, close your eyes, and I'm just going to lead you in something And I would ask you just to repeat after me. Everybody, Heavenly Father, I need you. Because apart from you, there's no eternal future where there's life and there's abundant life. So today, I consider the incredible sacrifice that you made by sending your son to die for me and to be resurrected into eternal life for me. And today I decide to invite you in. I need you. And I don't want to live anymore without you. And I thank you for your son. And it's in his name that I pray and say amen. So those of you that, if your heads are bowed, those of you that are considering that, and again, this is not pressure. This is not pressure. But you sense in your heart that is the spirit of God wanting you to be adopted as his daughter or as his son. And if you've made that decision, would you please just slip your hand up in the air? Slip your hand up in the air. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Now I want to do some uh, family business for those of you that are members here. So if any one of you just gave your life to Christ, there's something in the seat pocket in front of you called a Connect card. On the Connect card is a place where you can say, I said yes to Jesus Christ today. And so if you do that, if you do that, please take it to the Connect Desk that's out in the foyer, and they will give you a book called Jesus Is. 
and it will be your opportunity to start this incredible relationship with the son of the dude that created all of this universe. The other thing is you can also say connect because life is better together. When we're all together or when we're together with those people that love us and that appreciate us, life is better. God never intended for man and a woman to be alone. That's why he created us. So if you do that, if you take that to the connect desk, there's a bar of soap or a candle that uh, one per family, please, um, for you to take and remember so that you can remember this day. And this is not about come join the crossing. This is about come get connected with the, with the body of Christ in a Bible-believing church, in a Bible-teaching church, so that you can find out more about this guy that made this incredible universe, okay? And then the final detail for those of you that are members here at The Crossing, or even if you're not, this coming Saturday is something we call Table Talk. How many of you ladies have been to Table Talk? Anybody? All right. Is it a great time? Yeah. So... Uh, on our website or on the QR code on the seat in front of you, you can snap that, and there's a place for you to register. There is child care, but we would need you to do that. So let me uh, pray over your finances, and uh, then we're going to close. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, uh, we, we have seen again today that you've gone to incredible lengths to create something for us so that we can live and move and have our very being. You also said in your holy scriptures that you would supply our every need. And so today, Father, I just ask you to bless the jobs, the finances, Father, the lives of everybody here. And I say thank you for those who have decided that they want to follow your son. So, Father, we give you all the praise, we give you all the glory, and it's in your name that we pray and say, amen, amen. So, uh, Daryl is going to be outside, there's Hebrew coffee. One other thing, the card that was on your chair, you see there's a QR code on it, you can get access to all of his videos, all the streaming, everything, by just taking this card. So I would invite you, and he would invite you, to make sure that you do this. I know that. So how many of you, does your brain hurt right now? Okay. So that's normal. That's normal because the God that we serve is amazing. He, he cannot be described. He cannot be contained in anything that we can come up with on our own. Daryl did a terrific job of showing that to us today. So let's give Daryl a hand. Let's give our God a hand. And then you guys are all dismissed. Thanks so much for listening to the Crossing Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. Keep up with everything going on at The Crossing by liking us on Facebook, following us on Instagram, or subscribing to our YouTube channel. Or you can visit us online at www.thecrossing.cc.